Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade, Derek Davison. And I'm on the road this week, so uh, if there's a little echo, sorry about that. Derek, let's start with Gaza. Uh, I'm sorry, Danny, the quality of the audio is, I can't hear you, I can't I can't understand a word you're saying. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> Derek finally owned me, everyone. You've witnessed an owning. Am I... <laughs> uh okay so my face got a guest my face got a guest. uh that's a little levity to start off what is uh, gonna be our usual grim news update uh let's start with uh, the expiration of the ceasefire in gaza uh that took that happened on friday uh there was hope there were hopes uh right up until i think close to the last minute that uh, israel and hamas would agree to an extension uh, and further hostage exchanges or detainee exchanges, uh, but that those talks broke down uh, just before the ceasefire was to expire. Hamas uh, fired off a, a little barrage of rockets, I guess, to mark the occasion, and that was the end of things. We could get into the discussion about why the ceasefire has why the ceasefire collapsed, but the upshot is that the IDF, uh, the Israeli military, resumed its full scale. Uh, attack on Gaza and has uh, moved its shifted its focus as was expected away from Gaza City in the north, uh, which is already pulverized. Um, you know, effectively uh, has been uh, uh, you know re- reduced to rubble, uh, and they are now focusing on the city of Khan Yunus, which is located in southern Gaza, one of the two cities in southern Gaza, along with Rafa. Uh, it, the IDF has uh, been advising people in parts of Khan Yunus, in the eastern parts of Khan Yunus, uh, to evacuate. Um, this is another story we can get into if you want. They, they've developed this very convoluted system uh, for notifying people that they, they insist is uh, going to save civilian lives. Already there's no, uh, just a lot of complaints about this and there's no real indication that it's working. But they have advised people in eastern Khan Yunus to evacuate either to the west toward the Mediterranean coast or south to Rafa. They are continuing to bomb both western Khan Yunus and Rafa. So there really is no safe passage for anybody uh, making those trips. At this point, we've seen a couple of days now uh, of what many media outlets have called the most intense fighting of this conflict so far. Uh, the casualty figures are steadily rising. They're increasingly unreliable because of the shutdown of so many hospitals and the fact that there's really nobody, for example, in the north doing much recovery work anymore. So you probably have uh, a, a growing number of bodies that are just trapped under uh, rubble and have not been discovered. But at last count, when we uh, recorded this, or at last uh, glance, I should say, the the death toll officially was over 17,000 more than likely we're talking about more than 20,000 people killed uh, and and possibly 21 22,000 at this point the israelis have acknowledged uh, finally after weeks of uh, you know throwing dust in the air to confuse everybody uh, they and the them and the us government 
Uh, they have acknowledged that those casualty figures are broadly correct. Uh, they say that they are they have killed about 5,000, and that number is probably higher. This is a few days ago. Uh, about 5,000 Hamas fighters, which means they're killing civilians at a ratio of two to one to civilians for every uh, Hamas fighter. And I think we can assume that those figures are cooked to some degree. It, there's more than likely the Israelis are counting any uh, quote-unquote fighting-aged male as a militant or, or combatant, uh, which the U.S. does certainly in situations like this. So, uh, you know, more than likely that ratio is uh, is even higher. But even two to one, uh, at, which is what the Israelis admit, is still uh, a ghastly figure for an operation like this and has, uh, you know, caused a lot of uh, consternation. So, yeah, that's that's where things stand. The Operation Kanyunis is still going on. The Israelis are trying to encircle it the way that they did with Gaza City. Uh, the IDF says it's fighting inside Khan Yunus. And so it says, uh, in fact, I think I just read before we started recording that they say they have surrounded the home of Yahya Sinwar, who is the uh, Hamas political leader in Gaza. Uh, he's obviously not home uh, under the circumstances, but there's a symbolic value, I guess, to be seen uh, laying siege to his house uh, that they're trying to capitalize on. So that's where things stand. And, and you know, we can get into to some of the other issues, aid and, and so forth. Just a couple of, of quick questions, Derek. How has the Israeli public responded? Has there been a decline of the rally around the flag phenomenon if the IDF is admitting these staggering casualty figures? Or is there any discussion about what the actual strategic plan vis-a-vis Gaza is? How does this relate to the West Bank? Um, I'd like to talk about the Israeli perspective for a moment. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a, there's a few things to unpack here. The Israeli public, and I, I you know, I don't, I'm not mean to generalize but it's uh, unavoidable at this point i don't think the israeli public cares in in bulk about civilian casualties in, in gaza or among palestinians now that doesn't mean any individual israeli person that you talk to might not express uh, some concern but on the whole i don't think it's a major uh, issue that's moving public opinion what is moving people a little bit is the situation with the remaining hostages uh, we don't know the composition of the group that's left. There's about 140 people still believed to be in the custody of Hamas and other Gazan militant groups, uh, assuming they, they've all survived the bombardments and, and the IDF's operations to date, which is not necessarily the case. The families of those uh, remaining hostages met with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, shortly after the ceasefire expired. Uh, my understanding is that many of them came away very angry, at least angrier uh, with him than they were going in. Presumably, you know, they had asked him to do whatever it, it might take to get their uh, loved ones back. And he had given them the brush off. There is a you know, there has been a back and forth about why the ceasefire expired. Uh, Israel's blaming Hamas. Hamas says the, the Israelis were. Uh, you, you know, we're breaking, we're violating the ceasefire. The Israelis say that the, the Hamas just refused to continue uh, releasing hostages. Uh, and as I say, we don't know uh, exactly who is left. The, the, for Hamas, they're claiming that uh, they had released all of the non-combatant women and children uh, and that what was left were what, the next cut was sort of women who are active duty uh, Israeli military personnel, and they wanted to change the terms, uh, I think, of the, the negotiations. They wanted a higher price 
uh, for returning those people. And then you get into men and combatant men. And, and this was all, you know, uh, I think they wanted a renegotiation of the terms. Now, they were willing, I, I think, to offer some uh, remains of, of a few of the people we've confirmed uh, have been killed. A few of the hostages have confirmed have been killed. Uh, they were willing to offer maybe some elderly men, uh, but but there was a real dispute over uh, the nature of the next layer of or the next cut of hostage releases, uh, and that seems to have been uh, what was involved in in the collapse of the ceasefire. In terms of the end game planning, I mean, yeah, there's still been there's been some additional talk about that. We have seen. A couple of reports this week from uh, a newspaper called Israel Hayom or Israel Today. Uh, one of them uh, was reported out in English. The other one was reported out in uh, Hebrew. Uh, the paper reported that in, in the Hebrew piece, which was summarized at The Intercept by Ryan Grimm, uh, the paper reported that Netanyahu has asked his minister of strategic planning, Ron Dermer, uh, to formulate a plan to, and this is the euphemism that they are using here, thin the population in Gaza to a minimum. Uh, obviously, I think, uh, or I guess the best case scenario there would be you're talking about ethnic cleansing, uh, relocating Gazans to other places. That's uh, been a U.S. red line. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's also some work that I think Netanyahu would have to do here uh, to work over, uh, members of Congress, to work over people in the Biden administration. And that's the, uh, that was the other piece of the reporting from, from Israel Hayom. The, the English part, uh, was that they're apparently circulating an initiative, uh, to what they call key figures, uh, what the pa paper called key figures in the U S Congress, uh, for a plan to condition U S aid to countries in the region, Egypt, Iraq, Turkey, and Yemen, uh, on the, their willingness to take in Gazan refugees. Uh, so I think this would be cast as a sort of voluntary evacuation on the part of the Gazans, uh, which is absurd under the circumstances. Uh, it would also be cast as something that's temporary just to get them out of harm's way. Uh, I, I assume we would only find out, you know, a couple of years later that, oops, the conditions just aren't right uh, to let these people back who could have predicted uh, this is really unfortunate, but it will it would eventually one assumes turn into a permanent uh, relocation. So that's one thing that's been discussed. Uh, Netanyahu has been talking about uh, another uh, again, been talking about reoccupying Gaza, at least in a security sense, if not in the full blown settler uh, re uh, reabsorbing it sense. That is another has been another U.S. red line. They've talked about building in uh Security buffers, buffer zones along the Gaza security barrier. That's a dicey issue. I think that that they could probably sell the Biden administration on this. But if it if it starts to sound like a reduction in the territory of Gaza, again, that's another red line that people like Antony Blinken and Kamala Harris now just this week uh, have been suggesting is something the U.S. would not support. So, yeah, that's that's sort of the post-war planning again it's some of the same issues that have been kicked around uh, again and again and i don't think you're going to see any new ideas uh formulated here it's just a, a question of what are the what does the israeli government want what does the u.s want how do you get uh onto it onto the same page and i'm not sure that they're uh, at that point yet thanks sarah uh let's talk about what's been going on with yemen and in particular in the red sea uh sure so um the 
Red Sea, the the Houthi rebels uh, in northern Yemen have kind of taken their ballistic missile drone strikes uh, on Israel, their involvement, their peripheral involvement in this conflict uh, to another level by attacking shipping uh, in the Red Sea. There was an incident, I believe, over the weekend in which Houthis fired a number uh, of ballistic missiles on ships in the the Red Sea. There were a couple that were uh, suffered minor damage, uh, commercial ships, I should say. Uh, the U.S. Navy has stationed destroyers in the region. It's it's deployed additional destroyers to the region, probably to rotate with the, the vessels that are already there, which suggests it's setting up for a, a fairly long mission in the Red Sea to, to kind of monitor this situation. Uh, but there has been a threat to uh, commercial shipping. The U.S., the Biden administration has also uh, reportedly been talking with U.S. allies uh, about the possibility of creating a naval task force to take some of the burden for protecting commercial shipping uh, in the Red Sea off of the U.S. Uh, I, I haven't seen any indication uh, as to where those talks have gone. So, you know, this is this is related to what's happening in Gaza. The the Houthis, when they attack these ships, uh, when, you know, they've they've impounded at least one, uh, they they cite connections to Israel. I'm not sure that they're uh, all of these ships have necessarily have any direct connection to Israel, but uh, certainly, you know, the Israeli uh, Israeli commercial entities use the Red Sea, use the Suez Canal and the Red Sea uh, quite heavily. Uh, so, you know, this is this is another way that they are trying to participate in the resistance to what's happening in Gaza. I should should add uh, to this the international piece. The Secretary General of the UN. Uh, Antonio Guterres sent a letter to the presidency of the Security Council on Wednesday. Uh, the Security Council presidency is held by Ecuador right now, invoking uh, Article 99 of the UN Charter. This is a fairly serious diplomatic step. It gives It's a provision that gives the Secretary General the right to call for a Security Council meeting on any topic that uh, the Secretary General deems to be a direct threat to world peace. And he cited Gaza, uh, obviously, as the direct threat, and this is the first time he's invoked Article 99 in uh, since uh, Guterres took office in 2017. So uh, it is a a significant development. You know, anything the Security Council does is unlikely to be uh, terribly efficacious if there is a resolution, uh, another resolution tabled for a ceasefire, as Guterres seems to want. I, I assume the U.S. will veto it. Uh, so there's not much room for the the council to do anything substantive, anyway. But but as a symbolic gesture, it's it's fairly substantial. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's turn to um, <laughs> kind of interesting news. Italy has left the Belt and Road Initiative. So what's been going on? Uh, yes, the Italian government, since Georgia Maloney and her far right government uh, took power uh, last year. They have made it clear that they're dissatisfied with Belt and Road. And not, it's not just them. Italian politicians for a couple of years now, Italy joined the BRI in 2019. They were the only and still are uh, and will be until they leave the only European uh, participant in, in Belt and Road. They, Italian politicians have been making clear for at least a couple of years now that they're dissatisfied with uh, what Belt and Road has meant for Italy. Uh, it has not delivered, in their opinion, the promised increase in Italian exports to china it has delivered a substantial increase 
in Chinese exports to Italy. So, you know, they're viewing it under the, the lens of, of kind of that, that imbalance. Uh, Maloney in particular has, has been quite vocal on wanting to get out of the BRI that she's not a fan. Uh, and so they finally delivered, apparently, uh, they finally delivered official notice to the Chinese government that they are quitting uh, Belt and Road. They're not leaving right away. Their initial kind of introductory period uh, in the deal that they signed in 2019 was to last for five years. Uh, so it expires next year. They're simply not going to renew their membership when it expires. But this is, the, you know, this Italy being in BRI was a pretty big development for china as i say it's the only european country that that had participated in it um so losing that is is going to be a a blow i think to the to the project so south korea has launched a spy satellite tell us about that yeah i mean i don't want to dwell on this but we did get we did have a whole thing about north korea spy satellites so i feel in fairness uh we should mention that while south korea took great offense great umbrage Uh, at the North Koreans putting a spy satellite in orbit. They've now done the same thing. Uh, They've been after this for for a while now, as the North Koreans have been. Uh, In South Korea's case, they uh, contracted out the work to uh, a good friend of the show, Elon Musk, and his SpaceX uh, firm, which uh, put the satellite in orbit they launched from California this past week. And so, or uh, last week on Friday. Uh, And so, uh, yeah, again, I I feel like in fairness... For equal time's sake, we should at least mention uh, that this did take place. I, I think the North Koreans reacted uh, somewhat angrily to the launch uh, as South Korea reacted to the North Korean spy satellite launch. Uh, so everybody's got dueling spy satellites. But rather than say, OK, we, you know, we both have our spy satellites. It's time to kind of put this to bed. They've decided to uh, just get mad at each other for it, which is par for the course, I suppose. That's the Derek Danny promise, getting mad at each other instead of confronting the issue. (laughs) Hello, Prestige Heads. Danny here. And I wanted to tell you about this great product that I've actually been using for the past several months, and that's Aura Digital Frames. Now, you may have heard on the podcast recently a baby in the background, and it is indeed true that I've recently had a kid. But my parents, unfortunately, and like many of us, live pretty far away. But one way I've been able to update them on my baby's life is with Aura Digital Frames. I've been constantly sending them photos of him in all states, crying, laughing, what have you. And I can tell they really love it because they constantly ask for more photos. It's really been an amazing way for us to stay in touch and for them to feel like they're able to watch my baby grow up in a real way. It's an awesome way to stay in contact with people you love who might not live super close. And other people agree. Aura Frames was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter. And Fast Company said the simple, stylish digital picture frame can replace social media in your life, which is good for all of you, I know. So with Aura, give the perfect gift this holiday. Visit AuraFrames.com today and get $30 off their best-selling frames with the code PRESTIGE. These frames sell out quickly, though, so get yours before they're gone. That's A U. R-A-Frames.com with the promo code PRESTIGE. And as always, terms and conditions apply. Derek, let's move on to Guinea-Bissau, where there was an attempted coup, question mark? Yes. uh, The uh, 
it's been called an attempted coup. I don't, I don't, I'm not entirely, I mean, I, I'm not entirely convinced of this, but there was an incident late Thursday uh, in uh, Visala that, that lasted into Friday morning. The National Guard apparently tried to break a couple of cabinet ministers out of custody. They had been picked up on corruption charges uh, and were being questioned. Uh, and so members of the National Guard essentially attacked the jail where they were being held. Uh, they were interdicted by by elements of the presidential palace battalion uh, and engaged in a, you know, a running battle with each other in the capital uh, of Guinea-Bissau. The security forces were able to take the commander of the National Guard, a man named Victor Chongo, into custody. Uh, he is, as far as I know, still in custody. Uh, now, what happened after this, uh, the president of Guinea-Bissau who was not present at the time that this all took place. He was in Dubai participating in the COP28 climate summit, returned home. This is Omaro Sissoko Mbalo, uh, returned home and characterized this incident as an attempted coup. Again, I'm not entirely sure that's that verbiage is, is correct, but that's what he's calling it. He's participating or he's you know proceeding uh, on the basis that it was an attempted coup. On Monday, he announced that he was dissolving uh, the Guinea-Bissau parliament, uh, which is controlled by uh, an opposition party, the African Party for the Independence of Guinea and Cape Verde. The National Guard, as part of the interior ministry, uh, comes under the control of that party since it controls the, the parliament, it controls the government, the cabinet. Uh, so the National Guard is, is viewed, I guess, as this opposition-controlled armed force. Uh, and Mbalo is dissolving parliament. He has assumed direct control of the defense and interior ministries all as a result of this, uh, this incident that took place on Thursday. There's been some hand-wringing about this from the African Union. Its chairperson, Musafaki Mahamat, said that he had some concerns, uh, said on Tuesday, the day after uh, Mbalo made this announcement about the dissolution of parliament, that he had some, some concerns about that uh, announcement. The current speaker of the parliament that is being dissolved, who is a member of the uh, opposition party, uh, is uh, criticizing Mbalo for having now carried out his own coup d'etat. He called it a constitutional coup d'etat uh, in dissolving the parliament. Uh, so uh, that's uh, essentially where things stand, not the greatest political environment. Guinea-Bissau has, has suffered a number of coups and coup attempts uh, since it gained independence a few decades ago. Uh, so it's not uh, like people don't have experience with this sort of thing. Uh, Mbalo himself just just survived uh, a coup attempt, I think, last year that he blamed on drug trafficking. There have been political tensions for some time now with his opposition controlling parliament. It's been, uh, you know, kind of a, a tense back and forth situation. But yeah, I don't where things go from here. I, I can't say. Thanks, Derek. Let's move on to Russia, Ukraine. Uh, I wonder how long we'll be talking about Russia and Ukraine, though. Obviously, we'll keep on talking about it, but uh, things are things are changing. Let's start with the prisoner swap. Yeah. So on Tuesday, the spokesperson for the state, the U.S. State Department, Matthew Miller, said uh, told reporters in his uh, daily briefing that the Russian government, the, the Biden administration, had pr proposed to the Russian government what he called a significant proposal uh, for. Uh, securing the release in a prisoner exchange of two U.S. nationals who are in Russian custody on spying allegations, one being uh, uh, Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich and the other being former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan. 
Uh, he said the Russians rejected the proposal. He didn't, as far as I know, go into any detail uh, or offer any rationale for the Russians rejecting the proposal. Uh, but they have said, uh, with respect to Gershkovich in particular, uh, who was arrested last year and, and has not stood trial yet, uh, they have said that they won't, uh, or I, I should say earlier this year, I believe I am. I'm already putting us in 2024. Sorry. Uh, they, they said that they, uh, they've said that they won't, uh, release him until he goes on trial. They keep delaying the trial though. They've now delayed it all the way until, uh, at least, uh, I believe the end of January and they've delayed it multiple times. Now the start of this trial, I'm, I'm unclear as to what the, the strategy is here. If they're, uh, acknowledging that they will eventually, get into a prisoner exchange discussion about Gershkovich, but they want to go through the formality of a trial. I'm, I'm not entirely clear on the strategy behind delaying the trial again and again and again, and just putting it off like that. But, you know, I, I, I assume they have their reasons. And let's talk about the big story, which is about U.S. funding. Yes. Uh, so the Biden administration has been on a press uh, this week to make it clear, I guess, to to Republicans in Congress that it is running out of money to continue supporting the Ukrainian military. The uh, uh, director uh, of the administration's Office of Management and Budget, Shalanda Young, sent a letter on Monday to leaders uh, in the Senate and the House warning that the U.S. is running out of money, uh, will run out of money by the end of the year to support the Ukrainian military. Uh, she said that the exhaustion of, of U.S. aid would kneecap the Ukrainian military. And we've since seen, you know, Biden, Joe Biden himself say, you know, this is handing Vladimir Putin a win. And he's going to, uh, you know, we're back to the like he's going to invade a NATO country thing, which uh, needless to say, I think is, is a dubious warning to make under these, you know, at this point. But they've definitely been pushing hard to get Congress to consider this uh, or to approve this hundred and I think $11 billion supplemental war funding bill that Biden sent uh, a few weeks ago after the, the situation in Gaza, you know, broke out after the war in Gaza broke out. The Senate held a uh, what is referred to as a test vote on that bill on Wednesday. This is a vote that you call with, uh, you know, knowing full well that you're, it's going to, it's going to fail. Uh, but you do it just to kind of see where everybody is. Uh, it did indeed fail. Senate Republicans all voted against it. It failed 49, uh, to 51 Senate Republicans all voted against it. Bernie Sanders, uh, who has been talking about, uh, the need to condition aid to Israel, which is also part of this, uh, this package, the need to condition military aid to Israel also voted against it. And then, uh, you know, of course I believe Chuck Schumer, voted against it because uh, for procedural reasons, because when a vote is going to fail, uh, the majority leader typically votes against it to uh, retain the right to bring it back up. So yeah, it's, it's still looking pretty grim. The, the dispute from the Biden administration's perspective, at least the main dispute appears to be over another component of this kind of overall war funding bill, which is bo uh, over border security. Uh, the Biden administration put uh, additional border security funding in the bill as a uh, as a concession, as a goodie uh, for Republicans to entice some of them at least uh, to support the broader package. But there's there's a debate over 
how exactly that funding is going to be spent. Uh, Democrats are resisting some of the more draconian Rus- uh, Republican demands. Uh, Biden has you know, been, uh, again, in his pleading for uh, Congress to approve this package, has said he's willing to compromise, uh, but it has to be a compromise. He doesn't want, to, he's not going to just give in to everything the Republicans want. So that's that's where things stand. If the border security component is figured out, I would assume that the, the rest of the package will pass, even though there is some uh, just down the line Republican opposition to sending more aid to Ukraine. And of course, there are uh, Sanders, at least, and I'm sure some uh, some members in the House have concerns over sending billions of dollars of, of you know new weapons to Israel under the circumstances. Uh, nevertheless, I think this border, the border security component, is the uh, is the thing that is going to decide whether this passes or not. Let's talk about uh, tensions between Venezuela and Guyana. Yes. Uh, so uh, I don't know how far back you want to go with this. We can go all the way back to the 19th century if you want. But Venezuela uh, has for a long time uh, held a territorial claim on the Essequibo region uh, of Western Guiana, which comprises, uh, I think, close to three quarters of Guiana's territory. It's the territory west of the Essequibo River. For most of the that ties, it goes all the way back. You'll be shocked to learn goes all the way back to the uh, failures of colonial powers uh, in the region. But for most of that time, Venezuela's claim on this region has been relatively dormant. But in recent uh, years, there has been uh, the discovery of potential fossil fuel resources uh, under uh, on land underneath Essequibo and also offshore, and that has kind of peaked. Uh, the interest of the Venezuelan government. Nicolas Maduro, the president of Venezuela, uh, called organized a referendum uh, that took place on Sunday uh, that had a number of components uh, regarding uh, Venezuela's uh, potential annexation, I guess, uh, of the Essequibo River or Essequibo region. That vote went off uh, kind of a mixed bag, I think, for Maduro. The, the vote was uh, in favor of supporting Venezuela's claim on Essequibo uh, down the line, but the turnout was fairly light. The official uh, turnout was uh, slightly over fifty percent, uh, I believe. And anecdotally, there's there's some reason to to wonder whether it was even that high. Uh, a lot of people reporting just kind of empty, quiet polling sites, uh, which is not typical for Venezuelan elections. Speculation had been that Maduro was partially organizing this referendum just to sort of exercise his political muscles ahead of next year's presidential election, which, in you know, if that's the case, the, the vote was not terribly successful. Uh, he has since then, however, since the, the referendum started making some noises about, uh, you know, basically trying to annex this region. He's uh, said uh, in uh, televised remarks on Tuesday that his government will start issuing licenses for companies, Venezuelan gum- companies, to explore and exploit potential oil, gas, mineral resources uh, in the region. He said that he w- he's setting up a military, new military district, military command, uh, encompassing this region. But, you know, I'm I'm not entirely clear on how he he actualizes this without invading uh, Guyana, but. Um, you know, he's, he's at least talking about it. Maybe it's just, a, a again, a sort of play to, to Venezuelans to kind of give them a national cause to rally around. I don't know. 
but the Guyanese government has has certainly been watching this with some trepidation. Uh, their president, Irfan Ali, told media on Wednesday that they are in contact with uh, other uh, governments in the region. They're in contact with the United States uh, about potentially responding to any hostile move by Venezuela to to you know take this territory. Uh, there was a report late Wednesday uh, of a Guyanese military helicopter disappearing near the Venezuelan border, which could be very bad if it turns out to have been uh, brought down in a hostile act. There was bad weather in the area, uh, and they've just lost contact with it. I haven't seen any indication as to uh, you know the discovery or, or any uh, new revelation since then. Perhaps that'll change by the time people listen to this. But um, you know, if it was uh, shot down, and I guess you have to acknowledge that that possibility exists. Uh, that would be quite bad. So, so something to keep an eye on. You know, I I, I have a hard time seeing this turning into a full blown uh, military situation, but it's not out of the question. Let's conclude with some good news, and as usual, that's climate news. And what's going on with the uh, UN Climate Change Conference COP twenty eight, which I believe is in the United Arab Emirates this year? Yes, it is, uh, because the UAE, as one of our fine uh, fossil fuel producers, what better? Uh, place to host your climate change summit. That, in fact, was part of the the controversy uh, this week, uh, over the weekend, really, and into the week. Questions about the fitness of the UAE to be managing this conference. Uh, questions about the large number of oil and gas company executives that are attending this conference to sort of push the line that we can still burn fossil fuels and and tackle climate change at the same time, which is, you know, uh, akin to saying you can smoke two packs of cigarettes a day and still deal with lung cancer. It's, it's you know, it's a ridiculous concept. There was a, a, a controversy that sprung up over the weekend. Uh, a, a few media outlets, I think The Guardian was the, the primary one, published a video from, uh, I think, weeks ago uh, where the uh, president of Abu Dhabi National, or the, 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 the president of the conference, Sultan Al-Jabr, uh, who is also the head of Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, was seen kind of angrily telling uh, the former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson, who is a, a climate activist these days, uh, that you know the phase out of fossil fuels has nothing to do with limiting global warming. There's no like, there's no reason to get rid of fossil fuels. I totally agree. Yeah, I, obviously, and you know, I mean, if Exxon or, or you know Chevron or somebody wants to advertise on the show, we're uh, we're all for that. We're all for business. <laughs> yeah, we're open for business. Our rates are are, are very reasonable. So, you know, uh, that by itself obviously raised, uh, you know, brought back a lot of the concerns that had been percolating over why would you host a conference like this in the UAE? Why would you put the head of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company in charge of it? Uh, I think Al Gore, the former vice president of the U.S., had a, a presentation kind of laid into the UAE and laid into Sultan al Jaber and said that they're, you know, sort of, uh, abusing the public trust here, and this is uh, this all been uh, very unacceptable. Talk has has since turned to how the the summit is going to close. I think we talked last week about uh, the opening of the, the the summit, and and it was said that it was is relatively promising, relatively productive, because they did uh, finally at long last unveil a long discussed uh, climate loss and da- international climate loss and damage fund, which is. Uh, not an insignificant thing, although uh, there's still some major questions as to how uh, how much funding it's going to get. But 
now the attention is focused on how the summit is going to end. Uh, it's supposed to wrap up next week. Ideally, for everybody concerned, especially the UAE, for image reasons, they would like to end with a uh, statement of some kind. But the dispute, uh, there is a dispute over the language in that statement. The current draft apparently does have language calling for the phase out of fossil fuels. The European Union is pushing for this. The U.S., uh, is pushing for it. Uh, island, small island nations who are going to sink b- below the the ocean waters if glaciers continue to melt like this. They're behind it. A number of African nations uh, reportedly behind it. But the big oil producers, Saudi Arabia leading the charge, are just adamantly opposed uh, to having this language in the, the the closing statement. So you know, that's threatening to to end things on a very sour note. If there is no statement or if the statement doesn't mention fossil fuels, as it you know, has been the case in, in past summits, or if it, you know, just has a very milquetoast mention of fossil fuels, I think you'll see uh, a lot of people uh, kind of disgusted with, with how this has gone. That'll determine uh, what everybody's memory of, of COP28 is. Thank you, Derek. And we'll see everyone soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.